I was a seminary uh, professor for a number of years and pastor in St. Louis, and uh, I had a student who came out of the business world, had many students who did, he came out of the business world, made great sacrifices to go to seminary and then enter into the ministry. This young man, I remember, was one such person, and he... um, he made his way through seminary, great personal sacrifice, his family sacrificed as well. He went into a, a ministry in the upper Midwest and was serving, there's no other way to say it, but he was uh, serving a pastor who was a narcissist and was emotionally abusive. So this man and others of my students too who were working uh, there were either fired or burned out and left the ministry. This man moved back <clears throat> to St. Louis, back to our church, took a, um, another job in the business world. And I was debriefing with him on one occasion, and I, he said, uh, you know, I thought I was doing God's will. I thought I heard God's call. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be, that I was supposed to be a pastor. But I'm obviously, obviously... I wasn't called to be a pastor, and obviously I'm not. I ask you, what's so obvious about that? Well, I wasn't, I didn't succeed, I didn't make it. I was worn down, I burned out. I'm obviously not cut out for it. I said, uh, you know, the same is true in the ministry as is true in the Christian life. Suffering doesn't disqualify you, it qualifies you. Weakness doesn't mean that you forfeit the ministry, it accents the ministry. Failure is not a disqualifier, it's part of sanctification, part of the ministry. Well, I had forgotten about that conversation many years ago. He went on, got a job elsewhere, and I had lost track of him. And at our, we have a World Missions Conference every year, and we just had it <clears throat> last a couple of weekends ago. And, and a former member of the church who's a volunteer at a ministry in Texas uh, came up and said, uh, I have a message for you from, and she named this young man's name. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. What's he doing now? She said, he's my pastor. And he sent me with a message to you that he never forgot your words. Well, it took me a while to remember what I said, but I recall that I said to him what I said to many and that I continue to say to many and have to say to myself. That the Christian life is not one that is only successful when you're on top of the world and have no problems, when you're you're being obedient and you're being everything that the Bible says you're supposed to be. The Christian life involves suffering. Christian life involves your constant forgiveness and redemption. That God, here's what happens, God preaches sermons through you and me. And He preaches sermons through our weakness as much and more than our our successes. And what I want you to see for your encouragement in this In this long chapter, just two major points. I want you to see that like Isaac, 
If you are united to Christ, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, like Isaac, God is preaching a sermon through you. It has two points. You're an example of grace and you're an example of providence. You're an example of His grace, an example of His providence. Call of the Christian life is not for you to, to, uh, to give a perfect example to everyone else. You must certainly strive for obedience and strive for holiness. But it is God preaching His gospel through you. First point, God makes us examples of His grace. In theology, we talk about this phenomenon of being a sinner and a saint at the same time. The Latin phrase is this, simul justus et peccator. Simul, same time, justus, justified, et and peccator, a sinner. A saint and a sinner at the same time. That phrase was made famous by Martin Luther in a letter that he wrote to a friend named Reckenberg. And he says this, the saints in being righteous are at the same time sinners. They are righteous because they believe in Christ whose righteousness covers them and is imputed to them. But they are sinners because they don't fulfill the law and are not without sinful desires. They're like sick people in the care of a physician. They really are sick but healthy in the hope of getting better. They really are sick, but they will become healthy as they are healed. Nothing can harm them so much as the presumption that they are in fact healthy, for it will cause a bad relapse. You are like the patient who is being treated therapeutically. You and I are sick and getting better. We're sick with sin and getting better by God's sanctifying grace. We're sinners and saints at the same time. Isaac was a sinner. I don't have to convince you of that. You probably are thinking, I thought we already, I thought we already uh, studied this chapter. Maybe, maybe we've studied it a couple of times. Because I remember a famine somewhere else, and I remember somebody talking about his wife as his sister. Well, it was Pops. It was Isaac's dad. It was Abraham. And Abraham, as you remember from chapters 12 and 20, Abraham was given this promise, I'll give you this land, and in this land I'll cause your offspring to multiply greater than the grains of sand and the stars in the sky. And uh, I'm going to provide everything that you need, and you are going to be the father of the Messiah. The seed that will save the world will come through you, that meaning Christ. The very next thing we read is there's a famine in the land, and so Abraham does what? He takes off to Egypt. God just said, I'm going to provide everything that you need. It's in this land. It's your inheritance. And Abraham gets a threat. What does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. Egypt represents, it represents the devil's kingdom. Egypt represents man-centered ways. And so when, when the going got tough for Abraham, he didn't rest on God's promise. He went to Egypt. And uh, you see this chapter opens the same way. 
There was a famine in the land, as there had been with Abraham. And Isaac is living in Gerar. Well, Gerar is not in Egypt, but it's close. Now, it's not clear that Isaac started running toward Egypt like old dad did. Uh, it, it may have been that he had a perfectly legitimate reason to be in Gerar. It's in uh, south-central Israel, just, on the, uh, just north of Egypt. And it, it may have been that he had a, a, a reason to be there. But there's, it, it's, it seems to me probable that he was headed to Egypt just like Dad. There's a famine. I know God's promised to take care of everything. I know that God said, effectively seek my kingdom and all these things will be added to you. But when the going gets tough, you've got to take matters into your own hands. I can't trust God to take care of me. I've got to take care of myself. I'm headed to Egypt. And it seems to me God stands in his way and says, stop right there. You're not going to Egypt. You stay right there. Isaac did that. But then he <clears throat> looks around and he says, these people are not my people. I've got a beautiful wife. And uh, people are making overtures to her, so I got an idea. I'll call her my sister. Now, Abraham at least had some technical reason to say that Sarah was his sister. Rebecca was in no way his sister. But he learned somehow from his father when the going gets tough, you got to take matters in your own hands. You got to survive even if it means lying, even if it means compromising your family. Isaac was a sinner. Abimelech found out that this was not Isaac's wife because, and the, there's a euphemism used here, Abimelech saw Isaac doing something with Rebekah that brothers and sisters don't do, at least not normally. It's a euphemism. He saw them acting like husband and wife. And uh, Abimelech demonstrates a more sensitive conscience than Isaac does. We can't, somebody, somebody could have transgressed against your wife. There's no apology from Isaac, just defensiveness. Isaac is a sinner. And Isaac not only chose to, do these, to, to uh, sin in these ways, Isaac imitated his dad. That's a little bit difficult to understand why, and I've got, I think I've got far too many, yeah, go through all of those, John. <clears throat> He's all of those things, yes, but I'm, I'm not going to talk about all of them. Uh, but Isaac, Isaac wouldn't have been around when Abraham was lying about Sarah and, 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 uh, and fleeing to Egypt. How did he know that? We could have read about it. There was writing. We know that from Genesis chapter 5. He could have heard it in oral history. But I think he also inherited these tendencies genetically. There are two theories in theology about how the sin nature gets to us generation after generation. There's the theory of realism and there's a the theory of imputationism. The theory of of imputationism is that, <clears throat> is that with each succeeding generation, God fulfills his threat in the covenant of works that if Adam sins, he's going to pass that sin indictment 
onto uh, that condemnation onto generation after generation. So God conducts a kind of legal ceremony of transferring that condemnation generation after generation, and and we we grow up sinning. The other theory is it is passed on genetically. It seems to me it's both. There is the threat, Adam, you are the representative, you'll be by representative principle that you will be condemned as by representative principle that Jesus saves us. But somehow it's also true that the, that the sin nature of our, of our parents is passed on to us genetically. You don't have to, you never, you never have to teach your child to rebel. You never have to teach your child to be disrespectful. You never have to teach your child to do this when you're trying to reach for them. You never have to teach your child to say no, right? Just comes naturally. And Isaac, it seems to me, had a natural inclination to trust himself and even lie about his wife. He came by it naturally. Now, I want to say to you men that it's important for us to talk to our, our sons especially. We talk to our, all of our children about the fact that they are sinners and they are in need of a Savior. But we also have to tell them, you, I need the same Savior. And I'm telling you, I have left you bad examples and I have passed on to you genetically your sinful disposition. And I want to make sure you are not confusing the real good news of the gospel with the fake good news that somehow if you imitate me and you're just an upstanding citizen and you do as well as I have done, that you will somehow save yourself. I want you to know, I want you to know, little Johnny, that it is likely that you're going to struggle with the same sins I have, and it is likely that you're going to imitate my bad example, and it is likely that when left to your own devices, you will always turn to yourself rather than the promises of God. And I'm telling you, Johnny, it will be disastrous every time you do, and I want you to follow Jesus. You must follow Jesus. And then to be merciful enough to your sons especially to tell them the kinds of sins that you have struggled with as a young man or even now. I know it can be embarrassing. You've worked this hard to make them think that you're really great. You went through the teenage time when they thought you were stupid, but now they're coming around, you know, as adult children, they think you may have a good thought or two. You need just as much now as ever to convince them you will not make it without a Savior, and you must always trust in the promises of God. I have a friend who's struggling with his, his sons severely <clears throat> at, at, um, went in, the, in a church I pastored, and, and we could all see they were just like him. He was, a, he was a saint and a sinner. He knew his Bible well, knew his theology well. He was at every worship service, every Bible study. But he had a raging temper when he didn't get his way. And he had made a lot of money by getting his own way. And one day he woke up and he literally, he said to me, he said, I finally realized my sons are just like me. I've taught them that when they want something to happen 
it's not going their way, just pitch a fit. I've taught them by my own example. When a phone company doesn't give me what I want, I threaten, I yell, I take away the service. I've taught them that when you don't get your way, you can manipulate the system and you can manipulate people to get what you want. Now, this man could have been right here. I'm probably looking at a group of people who are used to getting their way. And uh, don't like to be told no. And I'm looking at myself as well. And when the going gets tough, things don't go our way. I say, I'll take, we'll, take, we'll take things in our own hands. And we may wonder why our children are not walking with the Lord. Or why our children have gotten themselves into such messes. Maybe they've learned from us. That really, the real gospel is, do what's best for self. Well, Isaac is a sinner. Maybe we are too. Yes, we are. But God also called Isaac and Abraham in particular, one, a saint, that is, one who, in the overall trajectory of his life, reflected a faithful devotion to the Lord only because of God's grace. Now, it's not so much evidence on Isaac. I've already talked about that in an earlier lesson. But I want you to look at what God says about Abraham in verse 5. God makes the, repeats the promise that uh, he has made to Abraham, reminds Isaac of it. And then in verse 5, he says, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Did I read that right? Abraham obeyed, kept charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. Is this the Abraham we studied? Or is this another Abraham? The Abraham we've been studying is one who had to be called twice because he had so much stuff. He was such a materialist. Such an idolater that he bogged down halfway on the way to, to the promised land. God had to call him again. This is the Abraham who didn't lie about uh, Sarah once but twice in chapter 12 and 20. Who, who went to Egypt to supply for himself. This is Abraham whose faith was, there are plenty of things to point to that are not model. But God in his grace looks at the, the overall trajectory of Abraham's life. And he says more about himself than he does about Abraham. I guided Abraham on the whole toward keeping my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Not in a way that would accrue to Abraham as a reward that would merit God's favor. But God exercised that faithfulness because he had the mission of bringing Christ through the lines of his generations. I want you to turn quickly to... Another example of this in 1 Kings chapter 15, an example of God speaking generously about great failures. 1 Kings, just to the right a little bit, get past the Pentateuch, and then 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 4. 
Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's a big except. David did right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. There's another example that just follows in chapter 15. I won't take the time to read it. It's about Asa. You can read about the bad stuff Asa does in chapter 15. But when you look up Asa in, you know, First and, uh, first and Second Chronicles follows is a parallel to First and Second Kings, and, and each serves as a commentary on the other. And you can read, this, this Asa did all kinds of bad stuff. But in Chronicles it says, and he walked with the Lord all the days of his life. Now, is, there, is, is, the, is the Bible mistaken? Is the Bible in conflict? This is from God's perspective. And it's not that God winks at sin. God didn't wink at David's sin. David sent Nathan, I mean, God sent Nathan to David and said, you are the man. You are that cruel man who took Uriah's wife away from him. You are that adulterer. You are, you are the one who put Uriah forward and had him murdered. And you will pay for this four times in your family. You will bring destruction on yourself, four of David's sons were killed or died. Disruption in his family, disruption in the kingdom. God didn't wink at David's sin. But God triumphed over David's failure such that he preserved the line through which the Messiah would come and saved David in the end. I want you to realize for your conviction and for your encouragement, that, that we are sinners, truly sinners, and our sin can have consequences and will have, can have consequences on our children, on our families, other people. So I want you to understand that we're sinners. I'm not going to race to grace so quickly that you could say, whoa, this morning I almost got convicted. I want you to be convicted of your sin as I am, and the disaster that our sins can bring on other people. God says, He warns us, He gives us His laws so that life will go well with us and so as to avoid these kinds of dangers. But I also want you to realize that as you think about that, one, that failure, those failures you have made, and there is usually that one sin in your life, in your mind, that your mind goes back to and the devil whispers in your ear and said, how could you possibly call yourself a Christian? How could you possibly say that you are that you are successful when you're such a poor role model to your family or you've, you've uh, you engaged in that in the past. And usually if we're honest, if, as men, we typically think it's that one sexual sin, it's that one thing that I did sexually or that thing that I continue to do sexually or that thing that, that, thing that I did that brought shame on my family. There's the one thing that we camp on and it's usually, it's valid But I want you also to realize that you've done many other things that you should be equally guilty about. Like, you know, there are other sins that the Bible says will not be found in the kingdom of heaven. Gossip is one. <laughs> Dissension is another. 
not loving your neighbors another. And, and so those things will take you to hell as much as anything else. So as the founder of Sonship used to say, cheer up. You're even worse than you thought you were. And cheer up. You're more loved in Christ than you can imagine. You're a sinner and you're a saint. And God is preaching a message of grace through you. Don't let anybody ever confuse grace with you being a great guy. You make sure they understand you're not a great guy. You have a great Savior. He preaches that message. And he preaches also a message of his providential care through us. The rest of the passage is about that. As Isaac does obey the Lord, stays in the valley of Gerar and uh, sets up his uh, house there and he starts to, uh, he starts to, he needs water. You got to have water in that arid part of the land in the Negev. You got to have water. And so he, he remembered that Abraham had dug some wells. He opened those up again. And the, the, the people around him, the herdsmen around him, envied. Envy is always irrational. It's so irrational that these men, these herdsmen, in desperate need of water themselves, said, we're going to show you, we're going to fill up those wells. It's like the time when my, my twins were in a canoe and they, they got mad at each other and said, each one said, I'm going to show you, and they both threw the paddles out of the canoe. <laughs> we're going to show you, we're going to stop up these wells, there won't be any water for anybody. Well, Isaac doesn't, doesn't uh, fight them. He goes on and he digs another well. They fill up that well too. He doesn't fight him. He goes on, he digs another well. Isaac seems to have learned something. That instead of manipulating, instead of fighting, instead of taking matters into his own hands, he said, God made a promise. He's going to provide for me in this land. I'm just going to go to the next place. He's promised there must be water there. Isaac is keeping a, <clears throat> a very... Simple command, and John, I'm, or whoever's flipping slides, I'm, I'm racing on. We can go on to, to uh, the conclusion. But the, he's, he's keeping a command that, that the Lord gave us. When he said, do not worry about what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall put on. The Lord knows that you need these things. Fear not, little flock. Your Father knows you have need of these things. Don't be like the Gentiles who spin around out of control and fret and, 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 uh, and, and, and call their stockbroker all the time and ask, is, is it going to go back up? And, and their pastor all the time, am I going to get the coronavirus? And, and, uh, and they're, 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 they're terrified. Don't be like those people. You have... Like they say on ESPN, you have one job, one job. Seek first my kingdom. You just ask, what does the Lord want me to do? 
Oh, well, that's not practical. Well, I mean, the answer I keep getting back, you say the answer I keep getting back is not practical. He didn't ask you to obey him when it's practical. What does the Lord want me to do? What would it look like in this business deal, in this family matter, in my personal life, to put the Lord first? What would it look like in this, in this situation where I've been wronged in business, where I, I could take a shortcut and make a lot more money, I could, I could do this and get my, get my kid at a, 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 by cutting a corner and get my kid ahead. I could, what, would it, what, would it, what would it look like just to experiment with this relationship at work? What would it look like to put the Lord first instead of me first? That's what it means to seek the kingdom. And God says, when you seek my ways, I'll provide everything. Now, how did Isaac get from point A of trusting in self to point Z, trusting in the Lord. Well, it's here in this text. It's in verse 24. I want you to see it. And he says, I've got to get in the right book first. Verse 24, God says to, to, uh, to uh, Isaac, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. For I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. The Bible will never tell you, God never says, do not be afraid, be courageous, fear not, without the accompanying promise, I'm with you. And when he says, I am with you, the first application is always, don't be afraid, be courageous. How did Isaac go from trusting himself, running toward Egypt perhaps, or lying about his wife? How did he go from there to digging the next well? Digging the next well in the desert, knowing water was going to be there because, by this, because God said, I am with you. Fear not. How different would we be? How differently would we act? How differently would we lead our families, how differently would we love people different from us in our culture? How differently would we behave in our churches or toward our friends or our families if we really believed that God loves us and is insistent on being with us even as he calls us to put him first. But when we're convinced, convinced of God's love and his favor, that he is for us and that his laws are for us, we will be examples of grace, examples of his providence. Isaac is later identified by Jacob uh, God, Isaac's God is identified later in this way by Jacob. Jacob. Jacob referred to the God of Abraham, but when he thought about his dad, he said, and the fear of Isaac. That was shorthand for, I think, for a reference to this, that God told him, do not be afraid. He's effectively saying, he's the God of Abraham, and he's the God of no fear. For Isaac. 
God made my father a man of faith. Jacob, by God's grace, recognized that of his father and eventually walked in it. Esau, on the other hand, at the end of this text, reflects the reality of the impact that our self-serving or selfish idolatry can have on our children too. Esau married a pagan woman and brought great bitterness to his mom and dad. There's a warning for us to pursue grace so that we would be positive examples to our children. There is also the comfort that even when we fail, God can overrule and preach grace to those who look at us as well. But we need to make sure they understand it's His grace and they must pursue it as well. Examples of grace, examples of God's providence. You are God's sermon that He is preaching. And may God preach it loudly and clearly to you and through you this day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have looked into the mirror of Your Word and we have, including this pastor, seen disturbing things lurking in our own hearts. And we have been warned that we must continually live vigilantly against our sin and repent of it. Not only do we not want to give an accounting to you for failing in these areas, but we don't want this to, to accrue negatively to our children, to those who follow us, to those around us who are watching us, however secretly wondering if Christianity is true or not. But you have not, by your grace, you have, left, you have not left us there with that, that, that concern that we would lose sight of you, that we would fail. You've also assured us that you're the faithful one who keeps us. You've assured us that your grace is greater than all our sin, that even in our weakness, you demonstrate your strength. Keep us there, Lord. Keep us dependent on you. Keep us in that mindset that brags on Christ. Keep us from ever deluding anyone around us into thinking that we are great people. May they only conclude that we have a great Savior. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's men said, Amen.